Okay, so let's continue what we were talking about yesterday. We're going through what the nature of the agadic statements are we're on page 283. And yesterday we said something interesting. We said that there is this ability given to each individual rabbi to try to interpret the agadic statement. Although on the one hand, there is an element of being pure tradition and coming straight from, from Mount Sinai. But on the other hand, there is this ability of the individual to put their own sort of a flavor on it as well. So the emphasis that specific agadic statements represent the insight of their authors and not necessarily Sinaitic, I don't even know how to say that word, Sinaitic authority, I guess, is essential, according to Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, to protect God's community from the danger of errors by preventing every individual from interpreting the agadas of the sages according to his own imagination, and then regarding his own interpretations as if he had given at Sinai, and bore the signatures of Chazal. Okay, so it's an interesting idea. Okay, what would have happened if, let's say, we thought that that when it comes to the the insight that we have on in these statements, these are actually the insight that is directly based on on the tradition from from Sinai. The problem is that these statements are so vague, right? As if to if people would think that this is certainly based on the tradition, then they would come up with their own interpretation, and then they would be certain that this must be the interpretation, which would lead you down a rabbit hole because you build a whole towers based on your interpretation, but it's not necessarily going to be the correct interpretation. In other words, like this. Let me explain a little better, I think. So let's say there is an interpretation that is the correct interpretation of the agadic insight. There's only one thing that is actually correct, and everything else is incorrect. Right. So then that thing that is correct, if you actually get that right answer, then that's actually 100 percent what you're supposed to be thinking, as opposed to a range of different possibilities of thoughts that are available in terms of interpreting that. Now, if there's a range of different possibilities, then you acknowledge that this may be the truth. This may not be the truth. You acknowledge there may be other ways to understand this. But if it was only meant to be understood one way and that was a way that was given through tradition, if someone made a mistake, and thought it was the right way, but really it wasn't, then that could lead to danger, right? But if someone doesn't make a mistake and always recognizes the possibility that there's more than one way to understand it, then it's not going to lead to any sort of a dangerous interpretation or sort of a, the consequences that would happen from that dangerous interpretation. Since so many agadic statements of the sages have been expressed in veiled form or reflect varied approaches, and the gates of interpretation have not been closed, they cannot serve as halachic guides, okay? is an important point. We never derive any halachic principle from a story in the Talmud that seems to be written in the language of Agada. So we have stories in the Talmud, right? And typically we actually have a principle. If there's a question in the Talmud, is the halacha like this or the halacha like that? Then what we'll do is we'll say, oh, you know what? We have a story. One time, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, Rabbi Judah, the prince, he was walking and this is what happened and this is what he did. And that will then become our our uh, case study that that certainly the halacha follows whatever it is that he actually carried out not just the principle but carried out practically speaking however when we have a story that certainly is in the realm of agada right and how you differentiate between the two is sometimes a little bit difficult but when you have a story that clearly is meant to be a deeper meaning a parable type of story there is no halachic implications that can be taken there is only no practical law that can be taken from it. There is only the meta message as we're about to see. Yeah, Rabbi Shamshul Hirsch stresses in the preface to his commentary on the Chumash that the truths on which a Jewish worldview can be built are drawn from the halachic and agadic 
traditions of the Jewish national past, which also brought us the biblical text. In other words, a Jewish worldview has to be built not just on the actual halacha. It has to also be built on the agathic traditions that come from the very same that brought us the biblical text. In the endeavor to formulate such a worldview, we in these later generations, so far removed in time from the origin and early tradition of the law, must welcome the confirmation of any of our own views, which show agreement with those of our sages. Okay, So if we come up with an understanding and then we have a source for that in the sages, then that itself is actually very, very helpful. It's Because it shows us that the sages had the same thought patterns as we did. Their closeness in history to the revelation of the law and spirit of the Torah and their spiritual stature and ability, infinitely greater than that of later generations to grasp the true meaning of God's revelation, vest their statements with authoritativeness. Okay, there's a very important point over here. People sometimes ask, why is it that the sages had a better understanding? Why is it that we cannot argue with the sages of the Talmud, the sages of the Mishnah? Why can't we argue? Why can't we come up with our own interpretation? Are they that much wiser than us? Some people would say perhaps their brain power was just that much greater, to which some people's response is, well, you look at what the state of physics today is and the state of chemistry today, and certainly it seems like we've outstripped what the, what the individuals or the scientists of their day had done, right? And it happens to be it's not necessarily a great point because the counter argument certainly is that the state of physics and chemistry and biology today is only based on what science had uncovered over the generations. And if, if, if Euclid doesn't lay the path, then mathematics today isn't where it is, okay? So perhaps in terms of sheer brain power, it's not a proof at all. But the other answer is by dint of the fact that they are actually closer to the revelation at Sinai and they are closer to the transmission directly from Moshe, they therefore had more of a attuned understanding of the Torah. I wanna give you guys an example of this. So oftentimes, there is this concept of if you've ever been to like a, a shear from Rabbi Leibowitz, right? In, in, in a, very often he'll come up and he'll say, maybe you could say the explanation for this halacha is like this. Maybe you could say the explanation for the halacha is like that. And depending on how you understand, there will be practical ramifications between those two ways of understanding. And then you could deal with even on a more, a more um, not even such a practical level, there's something called lumdus. You guys ever heard of the word lambdas? Lambdas means when you're dealing with the, the understanding of why this is the law. Let me think of an example, a really quick example, okay? So today I was learning with some guys and we were learning about a concept in Jewish law called you cannot relinquish something to someone else, you cannot legally transfer status of an object from one person to another if the object that you're trying to transfer is not yet in the world, okay? That is the law. That's the law as stated in the Mishnah. Now, why is that the law? Why is that problematic to transfer ownership of an object that's not yet in the world? So there's a couple of different answers given. So one answer given is, well, it's not possible to do an act of acquisition on an object that's not here right now because it's just not here. How do you do an act of acquisition? Another answer is the entire purpose of acts of acquisition, which is how you transfer ownerships of objects. You have to do some sort of an act to concretize your mindset. That can only happen if you have full uh, resolution of thought that you want to relinquish this object to someone else. And when the object is not yet in the world, you don't really fully have this thought, I really want to relinquish it. It's not really possible if the object is not in front of you, it's not tangible, it's too abstract. 
Okay, so that would be called sort of like the underlying reasoning behind this law. And that's more in the category of what we call lumbus, right? Of trying to get to like the, the logical underpinnings, okay? Now, at an earlier stage in time, they would never have even discussed those two possibilities. They would have intuited without needing to think about it, they would have intuited automatically what the correct understanding was. It's only in later generations that were further removed. We have to now try to understand what did the sages mean when they said that? But the, the people who wrote the Gemara, who were 100 years afterwards, 200 years afterwards, they would have said, I understand intuitively, of course they meant either one or the other, but they would not have even had to think about it. It just would have been so much closer to their mindset. It certainly is more of a spiritual understanding. It is not a purely logical idea that we're expressing. But what we're saying is that the closer they are to the original transmission, the easier it is for them to understand without getting distracted, without getting sidetracked at all by other possibilities of thought. Okay? So it should be noted that later in this letter, the author singles out Kabbalah in particular as the repository of the true spirit of Judaism. In effect, this position differs little from that of the Maharal, Rabbi Yehuda Loi, right, of Prague, who lived in the 1500s. And unfortunately, the thing that he's most famous for is for having, uh, probably falsely attributed to him, of having built a golem, of having built some sort of, a, you know, automaton who was protecting the Jewish people, right? Uh, presumably, this is not a true story, but what he should be famous for, and, and certainly in many circles, this is what he's more famous for, is for his Torah commentary, uh, which is absolutely incredibly innovative, very, very novel way of thinking. Or of Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the author of the Ramchal, the author of Mesilat Yesharim, which we studied together, who stressed the binding character of Agadic statements by our sages. They are binding, but also emphasized that they must be understood correctly. Very often, the outward form of the statement, its literal formulation, is meant only to serve as a cloak for the deeper inner meaning. So we need to understand that this is important, that this is essential to our belief. But we also need to understand that to think that we can walk away with it on its very, um, very basic level, then that's what the, the Agada is trying to teach. You miss the boat completely and you'll end up with a, actually a false opinion and the false understanding, which is not the correct way to go about our lives. Okay, so tomorrow night we will not be meeting at seven, uh, but Thursday night, Be'ezrat Hashem, God willing, we will meet again at seven and then uh, again on Sunday. And then we have Rosh Hashanah coming up um we'll, we'll, we'll probably be like on and off over the next uh you know once the high games start in terms of which days are on as well okay take care everyone